1: And just a warning, this episode contains discussions about suicide, suicidal ideation, and trauma. So I'm here live for another Resolve podcast with uh, Daniel, and he's going to tell us a little bit about his work in researching and advocating for better mental health. So could you briefly introduce yourself to our audience?
2: Yeah, sure. So my name's uh, Daniel Almeida, and I just recently finished a PhD in neuroscience. Um, My research focused on trying to understand the neurobiology of depression and suicide. Uh, So we use postmortem human brain samples of individuals with a history of severe child abuse, and we take that into the lab and we try to understand kind of the molecular biology behind depression and suicide.
1: So... What does uh, trauma early in life do to the brain?
2: Yeah, a lot of things, in fact. So a lot of my research was basically showing that child abuse impairs synaptic plasticity. So the ability of neural circuits to rewire themselves. Um, And I was particularly interested in the prefrontal cortex, which is the brain area that's really important in regulating mood, emotion. Um, social, cognitive behaviors, etc. So, I found that molecularly, um, the ability of the prefrontal cortex to actually regulate these downstream structures is impaired uh, by a history of child abuse.
1: Mm-hmm. So, uh, trauma has these lasting effects uh, that appear decades later.
2: Yeah, so I think what a lot of the literature is showing is that it's not really just a single traumatic event in childhood that increases your risk of developing a mental illness, but rather this sort of accumulation of trauma throughout life. Um, Usually people with a history of early life trauma tend to accumulate trauma throughout their entire life, even into adulthood as well. So I think a lot of the signal that we're looking at isn't just that sort of early childhood exposure, but rather sort of the accumulation of trauma throughout their entire life.
1: Mm-hmm. And I mean, uh, as someone studying mental health and doing a PhD, uh, how how did you manage all of the stress? How did you find a work-life balance?
2: Yeah, you know, despite being in the, the field and having a good enough knowledge on mental health, um, I still struggled throughout my PhD. I had a therapist um, throughout the PhD and it was really effective to be able to bounce ideas off of and really talk about a lot of the imposter syndrome that comes with doing uh, graduate research. Um, There are many times where, irrespective of how many grants you win or how many publications you have, you always feel as though you're not good enough to be there. so that was challenging to navigate um but it was it was nice being in a space where because all of my colleagues study mental illnesses they're a bit more sensitive to these things and we have really open and honest conversations all the time i'm not sure whether or not that would be the same in a completely different field that wasn't mental health related
1: yeah yeah that makes sense i did uh grad school in ireland looking at the microbiome and the brain. And I had my own issues with mental health and I ended up seeing a psychiatrist for it. So it it can definitely be immensely helpful to kind of get someone that can help validate your feelings. Uh, do you think it's gotten uh, easier now than from the time where say your supervisors or your coworkers were in uh, university?
2: Uh honestly, I don't think so. Because before, if you think about the standard for doing a PhD in the past, or the standard of, of research, I mean, if I even think about some of the supervisors that I've worked with in the past, their research was a lot less advanced than what it is today, right? They were using techniques that we would consider today to be somewhat elementary. Um, And that's just because we knew a lot less about the field. So we could, you could publish just by doing a simple experiment that would have taken you a couple of days in the lab. Whereas now psychiatric research is so cutting edge. It's moving so, 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 so fast that all of these techniques are so complicated. The types of questions we're asking are so complicated and we're getting down to the biology of mental illnesses at a finer and finer resolution. What comes with that though is a lot more stress and a lot more work to finish a PhD. So I actually do think it might be getting worse only just because of the fact that the expectations of a PhD is a lot worse nowadays because of, you know, the type of work that we have to do.
1: Yeah. Uh, how do you deal with that?
2: Yeah, I think having open and honest conversations with with friends, family um, is really, really important. And also just thinking about graduate school as a training, right? I think a lot of the times we enter into grad school thinking like, you know, I have to be a fully fledged scientist the second I step my foot in the door. But really, I think it's really helpful to think that um, a graduate degree, whether a master's or PhD, it's, it's a training degree, right? So we're learning and learning shouldn't be stressful. Learning should be like the most beautiful and exciting thing. Um, I think that's been helpful. me is to think about it as a training degree and not as, you know, uh, I have to necessarily be perfect and have to be the best scientist Mm -hmm. in the world, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And what kind of advice can you give to students or trainees in larger labs where they don't necessarily get the same level of mentorship or training? Like in in some labs, it's kind of like uh, you're being pushed and then you just have to fly from the first try.
2: Yeah. So I actually did my PhD in uh, a very large lab. My supervisor is pretty well known in the suicide research space. Um, so we're actually the largest group of researchers studying suicide in sort of one building. Wow. Um, yeah. So it's, it's huge. Our lab was huge, you know, all together, the research group probably has 80 people. So it is, it was a very, very big lab and that was very stressful because it's hard for supervisors to give everybody the same amount of attention because of how big the lab is. Um, But if you're lucky, then you'll have research associates, senior graduate students that can help you through the process. And that that was my experience, right? I was very open to learning when I first arrived. I was open to collaborating with postdocs, collaborating with other graduate students, asking questions, and that made it a lot easier being at a big lab. And then I think one of the good things about being in a big lab though, is that there's a large sense of community because there's so many people that you could be friends with. Yeah. And so going out with the lab a lot, just yesterday we went out for dinner and it was like 20 grad students. So it was like a huge number of us. So I think that's super effective as well as like making that community in the lab with the big lab.
1: Mm-hmm. And then going back to your work, how how do you translate the findings that your work does in, uh, you know, in the lab and in the clinic to the real world? And how do you kind of work to improve mental health in our society?
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great question. I'm very passionate about mental health education, mental health advocacy. So during my PhD, I was able to collaborate quite a bit with a variety of um, sort of professionals in different spaces. So I worked with an artist on, or a team of artists that had a um, sort of federally funded uh, exhibition on pain. Uh, And so I actually gave a talk on the neural substrate's underlying psychological pain. Psychological pain is one of the factors that's probably most predictive of suicide, that and hopelessness uh, and lack of social connection. And so it was nice to be able to sort of present in front of the general public and and show that psychological pain is represented in the brain the exact same way as physical pain, right? We're using the same mu opioid and kappa opioid receptor systems. Those are activated in physical pain, they're activated in psychological pain, the same brain areas like the insula are Mm -hmm. activated in both contexts. So um, things like that also uh, taught a bunch of public workshops on uh, suicide crisis intervention. So how do you recognize suicide? Um, What are the steps that you can take if you recognize suicide in a friend or a colleague? um, How can you support them through that process? And so just a lot of education, Mm a couple of media things um, as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Could you uh, walk us a little bit through uh, some of the suicide prevention strategies?
2: Yeah. So I think even before we start with suicide prevention, I think maybe we can start with talking about suicide in general, um, there's still quite a bit of stigma and shame. And then also almost the overdramatization of suicide in the media. Right. So the first is, I think, the language that we use, right? Uh, oftentimes you'll hear people say, commit suicide. Um, that comes from a time where suicide was a crime in a lot of countries. It still is a crime in some countries. Um, but in North America, it was a crime up until like the late 70s. And so if you think about the language of commit, people don't commit suicide, they commit crimes. Um, And so shifting the language to die by suicide, right? This is a method of dying and it removes a lot of that sort of criminalization around suicide. So I think that's kind of one thing. And then making sure that just even the media is a lot more um, sensitive about suicide. So a lot of the times um, a sort of famous suicide will be covered by crime reporters as opposed to health reporters Mm -hmm. and you can imagine that with a crime reporter it's a lot of that sensationalization um when it comes to talking about suicide in the media there's a balance that needs to be made between do we use this as an opportunity to educate versus are we using this just because of the media worthiness of it Mm -hmm. um so one thing that we know is that talking about suicide does not increase suicide risk But uh, putting in the media an example of a celebrity who died by suicide can increase risk, in fact, especially if the media report includes the methodology that the individual used. Um, So, for instance, when Kate Spade died by suicide, I had seen some media that were related to, like, the methods that she used, which is really harmful because it actually does uh, increase risk. So that's sort of one thing we can do on kind of the the sociological prevention side. And
1: uh, how strong is the link between uh, depression and suicide? Or is there any link there? Because I know suicide is kind of like, sometimes a strange one off thing.
2: Yeah, yeah. So suicide occurs across all psychopathology. So all psychiatric illnesses. Uh, about 90% of suicide will occur in the context of psychiatric illness. The other 10% will occur in other contexts, such as a cancer diagnosis or um, something along those lines. Um, irrespective of the sort of the illness that suicide occurs or co-occurs with, most oftentimes people die by suicide when they're hopeless. And that's sort of a fundamental aspect of depression, is that sort of feeling of, of hopelessness. Um So, yeah, I think, yeah, in general, suicide is transdiagnostic. It occurs across all mental illnesses. There are some mental illnesses that have an increased risk, like anorexia, mood disorders, of course, Um, but it does sort of occur transdiagnostically. And one of the things actually is that some suicide researchers would even argue that suicide attempt and suicide, dying by suicide might even be a little bit different as well um so we know that people who die by suicide usually it's their first attempt where that occurs not always of course um the methods that they use tend to be um irreversible so they tend to be um uh thing things that are a little bit more aggressive um so there are even differences between people who attempt frequently and then those who actually end up dying by suicide so even those two things might be different
1: hmm and uh so that translates to the pathology that you actually see in the brain, or is it also kind of like depends on other factors, like maybe some people trying more uh, irreversible methods or feeling less hopeful?
2: Yeah, yeah. So that's really interesting. I wrote an editorial recently for the American Journal of, of Psychiatry on um violent versus nonviolent suicide. So violent suicide... Would be occurring in the context of an irreversible method. Um, and then nonviolent would be sort of more of a, a method that, you know, had somebody found you, then it would be, you know, there would be a chance that you would survive. Um, and they are very different. So violent suicide is usually associated with um, an, a sort of higher burden of trauma. So usually people with, a, with trauma are more likely to die by violent suicide. Um, violent suicide also seems to, uh, involve this sort of association with impulsivity and aggression. So people who die by violent suicide tend to have a greater, um, history of, of impulsivity and aggression. Um, they, so there's a whole bunch of sort of like clinical differences between these two groups of, of people. Yeah.
1: And so how do you recognize and, uh, prevent suicide?
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that we can do on the community level. Um, There's no telltale sign, right? There's no one indicator that you could say this person is is likely to die by suicide. Even clinically, it's very hard to do that, let alone as sort of members of the community with with a little less training. Um, I think creating open spaces and open dialogue about suicide, I think a lot of the times our society is kind of death phobic. And so that doesn't really create a safe space for people to say, hey, like I've had these kind of strange thoughts lately. They're strange for me. And I'm I'm kind of concerned about them. We don't really have that safe space in our society to do that, to, to talk about those things. Um, so one of the, you were asking earlier about how I connect back to society. One of the things that I did uh, during grad school was create a uh, program at McGill called Death Cafe at McGill. So death cafes are sort of, it's this organization that's all around the world. Anybody can run a death cafe. They just need to register it on the death cafe website. I ended up with a colleague um, creating a McGill chapter. And the idea was that even me, I experience a lot of death anxiety and death scares me significantly. And I thought to myself, wow, Like, just imagine if I did have sort of these thoughts that were abnormal for me about death and dying in the society I live in, it would be very challenging to share that with a friend or a colleague or what have you. And so I wanted to create Death Cafe as as a way to kind of reduce that sort of death phobia uh, and create a safer space on campuses for people to talk about death and dying.
1: And uh, did you find that there is a, a lot of interest in attending that?
2: Oh my goodness. Yes. Oh my goodness. So much interest. We reached fire capacity for our space every single time. Um, it was, it's so interesting. And the great thing about Deaf Cafes is that it was so intergenerational, right? We had people from, you know, 18 years old to probably 80 years old. We had people that were driving in from Ontario to Montreal to attend our Deaf Cafes. Um wow. Yeah. And on campus, it had gotten so much hype. We were covered by CBC News, Global News, the McGill newspaper. We had tons and tons of of interest in in death Cafe. And so it seems as though people want to talk about death and dying. They're open to that experience, but that there just aren't spaces to do that.
1: Mm -hmm. And why do you think we avoid talking about it?
2: almost a philosophical question, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we might, you might have to interview a philosopher on that one. Um, I think because of maybe the impermanence of it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and uh, how do you recognize that someone is thinking about suicide or having suicidal thoughts? Are there any kind of rules of thumb for that?
2: Yeah, in general, the rules of thumbs don't exist for suicide just because of how complicated it is as a pathology. But, um, you know, if a person is, for instance, talking about a method, um, if they're talking about suicide and they have a method, they have a plan, um, that plan seems somewhat reasonable and seems like something they could access, then that's going to increase suicide risk and, you know, more likely to be closer to the ideation to action side of things. Um, another risk factor would be if uh, recently somebody in their life had died by suicide, a celebrity uh, where the media sort of glorified their death. Um, all of those things would would increase risk. Um, but like I said, you know, it's challenging because even clinically, it's hard to, you know, clinically, you can say when a patient has suicidal thoughts, it's just that switch from ideation to action, that's kind of hard to Mm -hmm. predict. Um, There are a couple of models that I think are are really interesting for that. Um, One of them is the three-step ideation to action framework. It was published by a a Canadian psychologist. And what it is, is, you know, it asks, um, is the individual hopeless and in psychological pain? And if so, then this, Is correlated with thinking about suicide. The next question is, um, is their social connection less than their psychological pain and hopelessness? So, you know, with this psychological pain and hopelessness, do they have people to talk to? Do they have a a strong social community? And if not, then that intensifies the ideation. And then the action part is all about accessibility. Um, Do they have access to the methodology that they're proposing. Um, are they, is it psychologically accessible? Did somebody in their family die by suicide recently? And so it's sort of top of mind. Um, did a celebrity die by suicide? Is there some form of s- sort of suicide contagion happening at in a school if you're talking about child, uh, adolescent teenagers? Um, yeah, so that that's probably, I think, the mm-hmm. model that's most is, is kind of interesting. There are other models as well. It's just... It's the one that I've found very convincing over the years. It was based uh, off of a meta analysis of a lot of the data.
1: And how normal is uh, suicidal ideation without any intention to go any
2: further? So actually, uh, there was a report that was just published from one of our collaborators. I I shared it on LinkedIn. Um, And I don't quote me on the percentage (laughs) because I don't remember exactly, but Even in people, like even in people under a certain age, like let's say fifteen years old, I think it may have been twelve years old or fifteen years old. um, They actually still have suicidal thoughts or thoughts that would be considered suicidal. So I think suicidal thoughts in general are pretty common, even in in uh, people below a certain age, even in people below or within the pre adolescent adolescent Mm -hmm. stage. Um, so I think that they're they're common. Some of us have even passive sort of death thoughts, right? Like, what would my life be like? If, what would people's life be like if I wasn't here? Um, how would that hurt people? Um, you know, what would it be like for them, et cetera? Those are all sort of passive thoughts, and I think I think a lot of people um, have these sort of passive thoughts. Yeah.
1: So people shouldn't worry too much if they uh, catch themselves having like. A passive thought of dying?
2: I think it's always best to, you know, if if it's something that's abnormal for an individual, it's always best to seek help. Um, I remember when I had first moved to Montreal, um, it was a very challenging adjustment for me. Uh, I had been raised in this like very large European family and then I moved to Montreal living alone and I remember one day being at the metro station and thinking to myself, you know, like I could see how someone could experience, experience so much hopelessness that, um, that that they think about suicide. And I, I knew for me, even that level of thinking wasn't normal for myself. And so I decided that um, I wanted to see a therapist. And that's when I sort of started my, my journey in therapy. And it's been super effective, but even that, you know, monitoring it and saying, hey, like, I don't usually have those thoughts come up. So, you know, maybe it's a good good idea for me to talk to a therapist. Um,
1: yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a fantastic uh, piece of advice there. Yeah, And what about when uh, the media is publishing something or if we're making podcasts or science communication posts? Yeah. Uh, is it important to use trigger warnings
2: Yeah yeah I definitely think so you know to make sure that the description of the of the blog or the post describes that um you know it covers somewhat sensitive content a lot of the times also when you're talking about suicide you're talking about other very sensitive things like in the context for me um a lot of my work is related to trauma and so that comes up pretty significantly It's estimated that up to 67% of suicide attempts might be in individuals with a history of trauma. So those things are so like inextricably linked that those conversations end up coming up, right? Like even in our conversation today, we've talked about trauma quite a bit. And so there are other things that come up when you talk about suicide that could be potentially triggering, yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, And do you think there's something more that uh, universities should be doing to support their students?
2: Yeah, so I, uh, yeah, definitely. So I think a lot of the times my experience um, with friends who have accessed university mental health services is that they tend to be very acute care oriented. And so the therapy will often be focused on, like, let's get you to a stable place. It mm-hmm. would be nice if universities made it such that, you know, long-term care was accessible as well, right? Seeing a therapist for your entire graduate degree and, and have that something that's accessible to students as opposed to the more short-term psychotherapy that's available. I think yeah. that would be super beneficial. Um, McGill has a ton of resources, which is great. Um, With something called the Wellness Hub. And um, so they have everything from psychologists to psychologists Psychiatrists, sexologists, to a whole bunch of different professionals that's accessible, but a lot of it is more acute care focused. It would be Mm -hmm. nice if we could see that sort of expansion to more long term care psychotherapy. psychotherapy. And
1: I imagine you've been seeing the same therapist for a long time.
2: So, what are the benefits of that? Uh, Therapy is amazing. (laughs) I think every single person needs to be in therapy. And not only does Not only, so like, even the breakthroughs that happen in therapy, like even those aside, which they're amazing, just being in therapy makes you more open to monitoring your thoughts, monitoring your behaviors, understanding when they're maladaptive, understanding things that, you know, are correlated with poor mental health, understanding the things that make you feel a little bit better, you become a lot more introspective, and that occurs even just outside of the psychotherapy sessions, it kind of just occurs on your own because you feel as though, hey, like I'm kind of accountable to this person that's helping me through this. And I want to spend a lot more time thinking about these things. And it certainly opens up your eyes significantly. And I see the effects outside of the therapy session as well. I'm a very big advocate for psychotherapy. So I think, like
1: mm-hmm. I said,
2: everybody should everybody should have a therapist.
1: <laughs> yeah, I wholeheartedly agree, especially since our company does give students access to uh, psychotherapy. I think it's uh, uh, kind of a fantastic description of why it's a a necessary service Mm -hmm. for everyone to have, especially in the middle of COVID-19, the climate crisis and everything else that's going on in the world.
2: Yeah. I love that you mentioned the climate crisis. This is something I, so outside of all of the psychiatry stuff that I do and all mental health stuff that I do, I'm very passionate about nature and the environment. Um, So I love being in nature. It's where my mental health is the best. Um, And there's quite a bit of research that suggests that nature has a profound impact on our mental health. Um, Even just being in a forest for, you know, 20 minutes can reduce cortisol levels by like a significant amount. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's sad to think that climate change is leading to so many changes for this thing that's so beneficial for our mental health. So I think I think one way forward for climate change is is to talk a little bit about how effective it is for our mental health. and, And maybe that could get people to care a bit more about our climate in general. Mm -hmm. And there's even research to suggest that, so we had a speaker um, from Utah and uh, they were looking at fine particulate matter in the environment, so pollution. And they found that fine particulate matter was associated with suicide. And it seems as though it might be through inflammation of different pathways in the brain, different circuits in the brain that regulate mood and emotion. so yeah, I, I'm really glad that you mentioned climate change because we don't think about it. It's, it's, it's so like abstract, but it has a pretty profound impact on, on mental hygiene.
1: Yeah, I think there's so much stuff intertwined with uh, the particulate matter and the pollution. There's also the research showing that people from uh, uh, people who are visible minorities and people with low socioeconomic status tend to live in places that are more polluted, they tend to get more of the cognitive effects of the pollution, and it also increases the chances of developing dementia later in life.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that sort of environmental injustice, for sure. And what I think is like, you know, a lot in the lab, we try our best to isolate independent variables and obviously with human data you can't you can't just take a human only expose them to poverty or low socioeconomic status or environmental injustice or child abuse one it's unethical two humans are extremely complicated right i think a lot of what we're seeing in the literature is this amalgamation of so many things that co-occur together poverty is associated with financial stress which is associated with Early life trauma, right, increases the risk of early life trauma, which is associated with living in poorer neighborhoods, right, and living in food deserts, living near um, these factories that are producing fine particulate matter, and so I think a lot of the signals that we're looking at are really just all of these things together, Mm -hmm. Um, yeah.
1: And of course, there's also people that experience trauma from extreme weather events that can go on to impact
2: them for the rest of their lives. So Absolutely, yeah. So
1: definitely a mental health issue as well.
2: Yeah, no, I agree. So um, there was a project, so in Quebec um, many years ago, there was this really big ice storm, okay? And the ice storm was so strong that people like had to leave their homes and go to shelters. Um, and what happened is researchers actually followed up. The children who were, I think they were in utero at the time or they were young children during the um, during the ice storm. And they followed up these kids and their risk of mental illnesses are significantly higher. Um, we see like neural behavioral differences in general. So yeah, there's pretty sound research on this for sure.
1: hmm yeah, and is there anything else you want to share, or any other important points you want to make, or somewhere where our listeners can follow you on social media?
2: Yeah, so I have an Instagram account, postmortem PhD, um, just because postmortem research. So postmortem PhD. Um, I I try to post as much as I can. Um, haven't been as consistent lately. But definitely, um, listeners can check that out. And uh, maybe we'll be able to do a follow-up interview one day as well. That That would be great.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for coming on and chatting.
0: And of course, a disclaimer. This podcast and all of our mental health learning and educational content is not therapy and is not a replacement for therapy.
1: Please seek professional help if needed go to with 2 vsca to get the support you need.
0: And that's all for now. We hope this was helpful in some small way. If you like our content, please subscribe and give us a five-star review wherever you are listening. Make sure to keep updated with all of our content on Instagram, TikTok, and
1: Twitter. And of course... Come check us out at www.resolve, that's resolve with two V's.ca to learn more about how our services can support your needs. Till Til next
0: time, time take, take care. care. Theme song for this podcast is done by the band Mokuse no Maguro in their song, Midnight Empty Street.